Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey, <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New York Institute for the Humanities podcast, now at the New York Public Library. I'm Robert Boynton. In 1983, 10 years after W.H. Auden's death, the Institute organized a series of readings and discussions of his work. In this episode from The Vault, Edward Mendelssohn, Auden's literary executor, moderates a discussion between Christopher Isherwood and Stephen Spender. Christopher Isherwood has asked me to ask him a question rather than to prepare something. And since Auden was one of the rare writers to take collaboration seriously, I wonder if you could tell us what he was like as a collaborator. Well, I remember some um, interviewer arriving and asking him, Mr. Auden, how do you and Mr. Isherwood collaborate? And Auden answered with extreme politeness. (laughs) In other words, we were very good at, at sort of tentatively making suggestions without ruling out anything else, you know? And it was true. We got along marvelously in this relationship of just sort of throwing something out and and kind of stimulating each other. I always felt like a, a, a librettist working with a great composer, you know? In other words, I just sort of kept the thing going because there, there had to be words, you know? I did feel that. I was awfully proud of Gordon. I can't tell you. I mean, I really was proud of him. And I suppose partly because he was three years younger than I was, and he was my sort of wonder child, whiz kid, you know. I was so delighted at his triumph. (laughs) I remember that very, very well. The, The whole trouble is it's very hard to say in a few sentences exactly what it is like being with somebody Uh, of that kind. It was a sort of joke between us. I mean, it was almost, as you might say, kind of camp, the idea that he was a great poet. And yet at the same time, of course, we both knew it. (laughs) And uh, we made a lot of jokes, you know, about, about the whole thing and about our 
relationship and everything. That was extremely happy and fruitful. We collaborated really very um, readily just by sort of rattling off a whole lot of suggestions. In fact, Auden was, if anything, uh, now I come to think of it, rather too easily accepting of any of my suggestions. So I had to watch it, you know. I used to say now, um, all right, now you must write a very beautiful passage at this point. Uh, you know, he just sat down and wrote one. <laughs> and, you know, I would take command and say, yes, but the now so-and-so must enter, or we were writing these plays together. I think it was a very pleasant collaboration. Whether, of course, it was as valuable as a collaboration of Auden's with somebody else, and of course, as you know, he did collaborate with a number of people from time to time. That's for others to say, not me. You see, we'd been to school together. And that was something I could never, never really forget, and I don't think he did either. We met when he was 10 years old, and it was so strange, that. I mean, that was that sort of, that atmosphere of kind of uh, relaxation and kind of fun together was very curious. Uh, it was th with us all through our lives. I remember when we, we started out for China. It's funny, it's rather a little hard to describe to you, but I remember, you know, we got in the, in the train, we were going to the boat to go to, the, uh, go to China. And, you know, we were like schoolboys suddenly. There were moments when we felt this kind of thing, that we were having an adventure together, you know, and like, uh, like kids. That was extraordinary. And always there was a certain sense with, uh, I felt, with Auden, as really with nobody else, of sort of play acting. I mean, uh, Whiston would um, sort of put on a kind of uh, joke of being a kind of a, a great poet or something, you know. But it was such, uh, it was all sort of, um, well, I always come back to the word camp, the most useful word in the English language in my <laughs> We were sort of clowning around, you know, and sort of, it all seemed like a kind of masquerade in a way, the whole thing, you know. Christopher, uh, could I follow up with a question about the, the trip you were taking and about uh, another kind of collaboration, you and Auden. Uh, there is a story, I don't know whether it's true, but mm. it's a fascinating one, that he would come to you during that trip almost daily with a new poem and admired you as the best of his readers. You would go through the poem and cross out all the lines you thought were bad and only leave one, and that he later took all the one-liners, so to speak, and put them together as one poem. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know whether that's true, but I was curious about how, uh, how he what, what kind of readings he liked of his poems, what, he, what kind of criticism he liked, and what you as a prose writer could learn from him and he from you. Well, with the utmost uh, respect, uh, I, I really, um, I felt that he did have a sort of curious streak of masochism in that way. He rather loved being told that something wasn't any good. <laughs> and he would, uh, you really had to watch him, you know. He, uh, that was a terrible danger was, you know, especially when he was young. He would just tear these things up. At least I had the sense to realize that he um, was a major talent. Thank goodness. And so uh, quite a lot of stuff was spared with which otherwise might have been destroyed altogether, who knows? Because he was curiously ruthless, especially when he was young. 
But we always, you see, when you have a friendship which is very intimate and which goes way, way back to childhood, practically, you do have this extraordinary thing that the whole of grown-up life is a sort of charade which you're playing, a sort of joke, you know? I was very conscious of that. I mean, it seemed absurd. Nobody admired Auden's work more than I did. And yet, the idea that he was a great poet was sort of ridiculous <laughs> um, at the same time, which, of course, was very nice because we sort of had it both ways. I mean, <laughs> but uh, we weren't solemn about it at all. And Christopher, do you think, I, it seems to me that at some point he changed, and I think the partly uh, why he could accept or uh, uh, send his poems to you and then perhaps put good lines from different bits that you'd approve together and make a new poem out of it. Mm -hmm. Which to me is noticeable, as a matter of fact, even today when I read the poems, I can see him doing this. It's because, in fact, he rather changed his idea of what a poem was. I think he thought he, he thought he'd got an idea from T.S. Eliot, I think, that a poem consists of lines. And they were just sort of strung together, and that what a poem was about was quite unimportant. Uh -huh. I mean, poems didn't have to have titles, did they? When he, and then at some point he changed, and I've always wondered quite what, and the poems did become very definitely about something, didn't they? Oh, yes, yes. Well, then, would he do the same thing when they'd become something about shifting lines from poem to poem? Mm -hmm. Afterwards, he still did this, did he? Oh, I think so, yes. Of course, obviously, I mean, you know, as, as we both got older and so on, and uh, I began treating him with the respect to which he was entitled, uh, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't quite the, the, the sort of schoolboy uh, irreverence which we had for each other when we were younger. But I mean, I think that when I was at Oxford with him, he didn't think that a poem, when we were both undergraduates together, he didn't think that a poem had to be about something. He thought that a poem was a poem was a poem. Mm -hmm. It didn't have to have a title. It had to consist, really, of beautiful lines, somehow within a, an atmosphere. I mean, his early poems are really atmospheric. But then at some point, I mean, perhaps during the 1930s, he suddenly changed, and the poems became about ideas, and the poems did have titles, and they were yes. almost preaching. He continued that the habit of uh, moving lines from one poem to another, but he said this was a, a habit that only poets should have. He said that. The reason that one should never believe a poet's theory about politics is that a poet is accustomed to deporting lines and words from one stanza to another without mercy, and of liquidating whole stanzas when he finds them politically inconvenient for the sake of the poem. The qualities that go into making a poet, he said, were not those that are to be desired in a statesman. That's very good, but I mean, at the same time, I mean, it seemed paradoxical, but he also later on, thought that poems had, in some sense, to be literally true, didn't it? They have to, that on the level of prose truth, uh, the poem had to conform both to poetic truth and also prose truth, which is another reason for scrapping poems, wasn't it? I mean, we must love one another or die. He decided, yeah. I asked him a lot about that. Well, I asked him, I said, well, did you take out the nine because it's stupid? Mm. Because we're obviously not going mm. to love one another. And he said, no, I took it out because we're going to die anyway. Oh, I see, whether we love each other or not, yes. Yeah. 
<laughs> yes, that's very, that's typical, yeah. <laughs> you were three years or four years younger than Auden, and I wonder what the little brother relationship was like as contrasted to the big brother relationship. Well, I was always surprised that Auden, to the end of his life almost, said that he felt himself always the youngest person in the room and the youngest brother, because he was the youngest of three brothers. Actually, I always felt that I was the younger brother of all men. So I was rather surprised hearing him say this when right at the end of his life. I think the point is, you see, a lot of people have thought that Auden was a kind of leader, but he was much more like a psychoanalyst, wasn't he, really? I mean... Yes, I think that's very food. true. Yes. I mean, well, you described that very well in Lions and Shadows. I mean, we, we went to Auden, and he, he, he was not likely... He, he wouldn't really tell you how to, what the orders were for today. He didn't talk like someone like F.R. Leavis or something. <laughs> like, he didn't say... God forbid. He didn't say... <laughs> <laughs> no, you're absolutely right. I agree with you entirely, yeah. Christopher, you said the other day that Auden always arrived with a statement in some way. That he yes, had... he would sort of come in the room you know, and say, Mallarmé won't do. <laughs> you know, sort of uh, discoveries that he'd made at that particular moment. And the next day, of course, it'd be somebody completely different. Or, but he was always making statements of that kind. Well, how, how serious was it? I mean, there was a joke yet. It, it there was, was sort something of a underneath. joke, and yet it was, it was a serious statement at the same time, a, a statement of, of sincere opinion, let me say. Was there a way in which he felt that he couldn't make a serious statement without joking about it because he didn't want to claim the authority somehow at the same time he was... Oh, I don't know. I think he was quite... I mean, he could be very serious and brilliant, you know, talking about some subject, very lucid. Uh, that, that was just uh, in this particular connection, I was saying. But wasn't there always a provisional nature to his ideas? Oh, they, he tried things on for size. Yeah. Yes, certainly, that's very true, yes, mm -hmm. yes. He assumed that he couldn't possibly be hurt physically, you said, in those, in the story, the account of China, that whenever there was reports of a poisoned cigarette, um, Oh, yes, yes, them, yes. when there he, were bombs dropping, he would insist on Yes, he always them. said, uh, I know perfectly well nothing can happen to me. It made me very nervous, because... <laughs> One strange thing he was serious about was his beliefs about the psychosomatic nature of illness. I mean, quite late in life, I heard him say to Stuart Hampshire, of all people, he said, isn't it curious that Freud died of cancer of the jaw, <laughs> considering one doesn't think of him as telling lies? If you could follow, oh, yes, <laughs> you follow yes. the logic of that. Oh, he was into that kind of thing a great deal. Then he was serious about not liking the French. He really was serious. That was a very serious, <laughs> very serious conviction on his part. Do we know why, Mr. Christopher? He didn't know the language, I think it was as simple as that. He got a sort of wah-wah talk. It's deeply British to dislike the French, simply because they were the kind of hereditary enemies of each other. So they always made fun of each other, you know, and, and I think... Um, Auden was one of the most British people I've ever known. But he hated Peleus and Melisande, for instance. Oh, yes. Well, they're just the, the names irritated me. <laughs> 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 uh -huh. Stephen, I want to pursue your 
point about Auden as part of world literature. And he seemed to combine the attitude that his poetry shouldn't be translatable because he valued the English language with commitment to translating every language in sight. Do you ever raise this problem with him? I think one, one important thing, I don't know if perhaps Mrs. Nierbo will disagree with this, but Auden did consider that he made himself a tremendous exception. I mean, he'd say things like, translations are terrible, and then he'd it was never do them, then he'd immediately do one. <laughs> I mean, he did, and I also think that he had a, he did really think he had a special relation with God. Do you, would you agree? Oh, yes, and, and his, uh, shall we say, sacerdotal statements, you know, of authority. And God wouldn't like certain things, he would tell me. But in the end, God wouldn't mind. Mm. It's rather like the Americans are supposed to be with the English, a special mm. relationship. And, uh, what Mr. Isherwood said, one time I was very nervous uh, about, after so many aeroplane crashes, and I'd just seen my husband off to a UNESCO thing, I think, and Winston to cheer me up, sent me a marvelous statement, and said just what you said, I always tell myself God wouldn't dare. Ah, yeah. <laughs> well, isn't that very peculiar? I mean, if you compare it, say, with, with T.S. Eliot, I mean, you can't imagine T.S. Eliot ever saying, I mean, I admire, to the point of idolatry, T.S. Eliot, anyone I admire as much as with Auden, it's T.S. Eliot. But you can't imagine Eliot under any circumstances saying that kind of thing, can you? I mean, somehow in that way his, his religion was completely different, and that's always rather fascinated me. Oh, they were completely different. Winston wrote to me and said, I had a wonderful evening with old Possum. After talking affectionately about you and your husband, we discussed piles, that's hemorrhoids, uh, hernias, and I've forgotten all the other diseases. <laughs> and then went on to something very irreverent. Well, I've never suspect Mr. Elliot writing and telling me uh, the same about Whiston. He wrote, Mr. Elliot wrote rather like an auntie about mm. Whiston. Well, uh, he was not a buncular. Uh, Wisdom was avuncular with our children, but Mr. Elliot was rather like a nice spinster aunt. He would write very nice letters and say, I'm so glad you and your husband are spending, are seeing a good deal of Wisdom and taking such an interest in him. As if he was a small boy, you know, that we were seeing was I... doing the right thing. And I couldn't see uh, reversing that. I mean, Elliot would not have talked about Miss God, she's black. A statement like that. <laughs> that statement like that would not have Yes, entered. he was very fond of saying things like this. Yes. <laughs> I remember the first time that Whiston uh, uh, went to meet T.S. Eliot at the uh, publishing house, Faber and Faber. We were wondering what Eliot would be like. Uh, I remember him quoting Emily Dickinson has it feathers like a bird, or breakers like the shore? <laughs> <laughs> Silly, that just came in my head. <laughs> There's a way in which his, the legacy to literary history is the range of subjects he allowed into verse, the range mm -hmm. of language. It's easy to forget that no one but Auden would write about bicycles, or headlamps, or arterial roads, or... Uh, the jokey language without looking down his nose at it, the way poets of a generation just before him might, might do when they brought this in. 
part of the, a play like The Dog Beneath the Skin, which you worked on, is a wild extravaganza that brings in almost everything from anywhere. The poet Eliot um, said that Auden brought the poetic drama in some way into the 20th century, or made possible 20th century poetic drama. I um, shuddered, you remember, how uh, irresponsible our attitude was while we were writing that play. That was I mean, we just put down absolutely anything that occurred to us. It was a miracle that um, it worked even, even as well as it did. Um, because, you know, we were just sort of amusing each other, really. It was like a sort of um, the Marx Brothers or something making sort of mad suggestions to each other. Christopher, could I ask, uh, when you were in China, what was his attitude to politics, or what was your attitude to politics? When you, when you, when oh, you well, I think it was very uncomplicated. Uh, he didn't like Madame Chiang Kai-shek, I remember that. <laughs> he thoroughly disapproved of her. Um, he thought she was kind of phony. And she was very gracious, certainly, there's no question. Oh, in general, a matter of fact, that's one of the happiest times of my life was when we went to China. I mean, it was uh, so much fun and so on. But of course, we kept sort of making a kind of a joke out of the fact that we were supposed to be in terrible danger because as a matter of fact, A, we weren't and B, we didn't think we were. <laughs> but there was a lot of banging, of course, going on and shots and things. It was on the way back from China you decided to come to America. Well, that's very complicated. It's not quite as simple as that. I mean, there were a lot of factors in that. We were very turned on by that. But I wouldn't say that we decided, you know, to uh, go to America for the rest of our lives or anything. It was just that um, we felt a great curiosity about America, as well we might have, because a most marvelous host we had. Uh, George Davis. Uh, the writer George Davis, yes, who really made New York turn into a sort of wonderland. He took us around everywhere, you know, and we both enjoyed ourselves immensely and came back raving about uh, the United States and everything. Can I ask for a final remark on Auden's legacy from any of our participants? Stephen. Uh, well, I think that uh, Auden, well, he's really absolutely unique amongst all the people I've ever known, and one special thing about his uniqueness is he's the only person I've ever known who decided at a very early age exactly what he wanted to do and wanted to be and was that and did that. He decided at a very early age that he wanted to write a mass of poetry to be a great poet and he did it. He also had a sense that every single moment of your life you were making a choice if you chose to do one thing, enjoy your, I don't know, indulge yourself in some way, you were choosing not at that moment not to work. This is very unlike most of us, I think. We do not think if we choose to do what we want that we're choosing not to do something which we don't want to do at that moment. But he's always conscious of choice. And he did produce this great body of work in which he was able to write about everything. And that way, I sometimes think he was like a kind of Victorian poet transplanted into the 20th century, in that he did write this great volume. Um, the one statement that this whole discussion has made without anyone saying it specifically, is that Auden, I suspect uniquely among 20th century poets, perhaps many centuries before that, excites 
the widest range of response. Auden once said when he was young that the test of a poet is the number of occasions on which we remember his poetry. And this was at a point when he was not really writing poetry about subjects, as you said. But at the end, he becomes the poet whom we respond to in context ranging from the theological to the camp without any sense of inconsistency, any sense of division inside a personality. The, the Auden's legacy is the wideness of his range and the brilliance that he brought to all of it. I thank you for coming. This podcast was brought to you by the New York Institute for Humanities at NYU. You can find us on Stitcher, iTunes, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. For more information, visit us at nyihumanities.org.